You're listening to the Quince podcast. In our last few episodes, we've dived deep into various issues that concern property rights. From discussing the extent and impact of weak property rights in the case of slum dwellers in Mumbai, scheduled tribes across India, and tenant farmers, to trying to understand the various solutions that we could potentially employ to solve some of these issues, be it effective urban policies or the role that tech-based startups can play in this regard. However, one important aspect that remains to be covered, especially when we talk about property rights in India, is land reforms. From the independence era till today, understanding various phases of land reforms that our country has witnessed is critical in understanding the evolution of India's thinking and approach when it comes to property rights. To guide us through the subject, we have with us former veteran IAS bureaucrat and current economics professor at the NCAER, Dr. K.P. Krishnan. Dr. Krishnan has in the past held secretary-level positions in the government of India in crucial ministries such as land resources. He also holds a PhD in economics from IIM and has produced extensive literature on the role of land in India's economy and related policy prescriptions. Welcome to the Quinn's fortnightly podcast, Land of a Billion. This podcast is produced in association with the Property Rights Research Consortium, or PRRC, which is supported by Omidya Network India, an investment firm focused on social impact. PRRC is a network of leading think tanks and research organizations working to collaborate and drive policy action in the field of land, housing, and property rights in India. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Krishnan. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you, Abhishek. Uh, same here. Look forward to a, what I would hope would be an interesting conversation. Thank you. Yes. So the goal of our podcast is to understand what it takes to secure land rights for a billion. To help us understand this and also to set the context for this episode, could you perhaps help us uh, trace the history of some significant laws and reforms that India has seen with respect to land and property? And uh, maybe how this has changed over time to the present day? A lot of the interest, uh, at least the recent interest in land, goes back to the uh, what is called the RFCTLARR. It's a mouthful. This is the new Land Acquisition Act that got notified in December of 2013. This was supposed to replace the old Land Acquisition Act of 1899, which is a colonial legislation under which people were getting very low levels of compensation. And I think what became uh, very public and sort of uh, debated intensely in the television and news media Mm -hmm. is the attempt by the new government in 2014 to, quote-unquote, dilute the Land Acquisition Act. And Mm -hmm. I said, quote-unquote, because the feeling was the new Acquisition Act makes it difficult for industry and for infrastructure projects to get land. And the attempt of the government in 2014, uh, culminating in an ordinance in December of 14, Mm -hmm. was to make it easier for industry and infrastructure providers to acquire land. Now, this is the context in which land became a topic of everyday conversation, including at the dining table. Right. But I think this was actually, you know, a very small part of the land issue in India. I think what we need to understand is 
land is a obviously a critical factor of production of the four land is completely inelastic in supply you can't create land you can substitute for labor with machines you can mm-hmm. if you are short of capital domestically you can import capital entrepreneurship likewise you know you could have domestic entrepreneurs or you could potentially have an amazon or uh, you know an ibm coming into india assuming if you have a serious shortage of entrepreneurship but acquiring land outside of india on a scale that will make a difference is not ordinarily feasible mm-hmm. and hence land becomes a binding constraint so i think we need to understand the historical uh, you know context various legislative attempts on why land is an issue yeah um i think just to understand maybe some of the you know you, you spoke about the dining table dining table conversations uh, maybe uh, what were some of the you know nuances that perhaps were not uh, carefully uh, enough passed out uh, in popular media um, that you know maybe you've covered in your uh, research work yeah so the point that we sort of emphasized in some of the articles that i and my co-authors wrote at that time in the epw uh, the economic and political weekly is land and typically this is the case in most developing countries and and certainly true of india a lot of wealth of middle class lower middle class citizens is typically in land right to use the jargon there isn't adequate financialization of savings in india for a variety of reasons people think gold and land are better hedges for inflation than financial assets so people tend to invest a lot of their savings meager as they may be you know you may be a small worker and uh, your savings is not a very large sum in an absolute sense but your tendency a from an inflation uh, protection point of view and two i think there is a serious emotional connect and and this is true of people generally and i think even more mm-hmm. true of indians the first thing you want to do when you get money uh, of a decent amount is acquire land in the form of a house mm-hmm. or sometimes even uh, go back and acquire land in the village where i came from so there is a tendency to acquire land and there is data to show and i don't want to sort of throw the data at you in this conversation there is data mm-hmm. to show that a disproportionate amount of savings in india is in the form of land mm-hmm. now if that is the case the first thing that citizens must know and and Uh, sort of will value for sure is security of title if i've gone and put my life savings into a house in noida greater noida gurgaon or you know some peripheral part of bangalore i want to be absolutely sure that the land is you know free of encumbrances the title is good and it indeed belongs to me when i think it belongs to me and the sad mm-hmm. truth is this is very seriously suspect and uh, each of us uh, talking of dining table conversations mm-hmm. will have a dining table story where you know your uncle who had bought x uh, piece of land and uh, got cheated i know an aunt who uh, was done out of her house and so on all of us have our favorite mm-hmm. land duping mm-hmm. stories so i think the issue that we need to worry about first from a citizen point of view is this whole business of title and security of title right right and and a commonly used way of understanding land reforms in india is to see them under four main categories the first is the abolition of intermediaries 
second is the tenancy regulations third is the sealing of land holdings and fourth is the consolidation of holdings how do you think india has fared in these parameters and where do you think uh, the most amount of work remains to be done remember all these four primarily relate to agricultural land okay so now we are talking about land typically as a productive asset in the hands of farmers or people who used to be farmers there is another dimension to land which is land as dwelling and and we will uh, come to that presently but let's start with land in the agricultural sense mm-hmm. abolition of intermediaries has a historical background when the sort of the east india company and then subsequently the english began to rule india the primary source of revenue for the government uh, the government here locally was land revenue and for ease of collection of land revenue governments uh, the british and prior to that sometimes uh, you know some reigns so the mughal uh, kings also mm-hmm. created intermediaries whose job it was to only collect the revenue so xyz is notified as the intermediary authority who has been given the power to collect revenue on behalf of the sovereign pass it on to the sovereign and the original model was the sovereign fixed the percentage of land revenue so if your produce is valued at rupees x uh, y percentage of rupees x will become land revenue mm-hmm. over a period of time uh, as uh, it happens uh, in you know these power relationships this intermediary actually began to acquire traits of ownership in other words the sovereign would say i am contracting you to give me x 1000 uh, rupees as revenue hmm. and now this is regardless of how much you collect from the peasantry b very often the sovereign also began to allow the intermediary to determine the rates of revenue Mm-hmm. so the result was uh, to cut a long story short the intermediary actually began to behave like the owner mm. and historically he or she was not the owner it was mostly he so he was not the owner so one of the major issues during the freedom movement was this intermediary category popularly known as zamindars would need to be abolished because they are enjoying ownership rights over land which actually never belonged to them mm-hmm. so abolition of these intermediaries was a very major part of the freedom movement and hence the congress party's uh, manifesto and policies and uh, this was among the first things that post independent india did but remember land uh, certainly this aspect of land is a state subject so these mm-hmm. had to be legislations done by state legislatures mm-hmm. these got into a whole bunch of difficulties because we also had a constitution which made this slightly difficult because you had a constitutional fundamental right to property now if the idea was undoing a historical injustice the government rightly felt we should not be paying market compensation mm-hmm. whereas the interpretation of the courts was the right to property gave the intermediary the right to receive market compensation so a lot of these legislations got into controversy got into court battles and didn't necessarily get successfully implemented all across india mm-hmm. that's the mm-hmm. sort of story on the abolition of uh, intermediaries mm-hmm. tenancy reform was slightly different and some of this is sort of coming back to haunt us now mm. the 
quote-unquote romantic view of agriculture has always been self-cultivating owner in right. charge of his or her destiny. So, if there is a piece of land and Abhishek is the owner, mm-hmm. Abhishek should cultivate the land is the general idea behind, and I'm, I'm caricaturing this, uh, is the right. general idea behind the tenancy reforms. Now, mm-hmm. step back, think for one minute. If Abhishek is an excellent IT engineer, does it make sense for Abhishek to also be producing the food that he requires, uh, wash his clothes, uh, do uh, everything? No, the world is characterized by what is called division of labor. Mm-hmm. So if Abhishek is not necessarily great at making khana, Abhishek should do what he is good at, get khana from outside. Now, tenancy reform effectively did not allow this. And if you remember, uh, if you come to currently what is happening all around Delhi. Right, with the central government's three farm laws. One of the three laws actually deals with tenancies. So, should land necessarily be only cultivated by the owner? Or should there be a tenant? A lot of the legislations post-independence effectively prohibited tenancies and allowed very limited windows for tenancy. For instance, an ex uh, or a serving armed forces personnel, only limited categories were allowed to do tenancy. Mm -hmm. And Karnataka, for instance, passed a legislation where it said, tenants will become owners of the land. Yes. So if the landlord had given it on tenancy, and if there is proof that the land was given on tenancy, the land will belong to the tenant. This was Mm -hmm. the second uh, legislation. Uh, any questions on one and two? Otherwise, I'll go on to sealing and consolidation and very quickly speak about them. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, my only comment was that, you know, we uh, ha- had Dr. Huck uh, come on the show uh, and he, you know, explained the the model um, tenancy uh, act and the, the manner in which, um, you know, the, some of the safeguards that, that are built into that act to avoid, you know, the kind of corporatization that people have feared. Um, so that's something that uh, perhaps, you know, glides well with the ceilings on, of land holdings and, and the consolidation, the, the final two that, you know, I'm hoping that we learn more about. Correct. So the only quick comment I have on the tenancy part is, you know, we need to, uh, to some extent, uh, in a more sort of progressive modern society that we are becoming, learn to appreciate that at one level, land is an important economic asset. And we need to realize the full potential of land. And if the current owner of the land is not the person who is likely to best utilize it, India needs to figure out a way in which, without the owner getting exploited, the land can be put to good use by a person who is best placed to use it. Because we've done that for capital. Because if I have a great idea, I don't have money, there are mechanisms by which I can go raise money put my idea into practice and all of these startup stories, the IPO stories, what? I have idea, I don't have capital, I source it from the world. Likewise, we must make sure that land is put to the best use in the hands of the best persons. That's my quick comment on tenancy. Moving on to ceiling, the third idea was, and and this is clearly the result of our overall sort of approach to economic issues, Uh, which was focused on equity, distribution, and in a sense informed by uh, adoption of socialism. We may have formally introduced the word socialism in the preamble to the constitution only in 1976, but clearly socialistic pattern of society 
was adopted, if I remember right, in the Congress resolution in 1957 at Avdi. You know, this is the famous Congress Working Committee or a Congress Convention. So, informed by those kinds of views, the idea was no individual should have above X amount of land. And it became complex because you can't compare land uh, which is dry with land which is well irrigated. You can't compare wetlands or irrigated land with garden land. So you had to have complicated conversion formulas, etc., etc. So you created a whole complex mechanism whereby you said anyone having about prescribed ceiling surrenders it to a pool and then it gets redistributed, somewhat similar to the abolition of intermediary type of thing because you are effectively depriving somebody of his or her property and distributing it to somebody else, which again brought the question of compensation, market compensation, fair compensation, etc., etc. Ceiling legislations also got into a lot of court disputes and didn't get implemented in the manner that the government and the you know, original intent, sort of intentions uh, were. Last point, consolidation or what in the North, you know, North India is called Chakbandi was to deal with another problem of agriculture, which is fragmentation. So A.P. Krishnan or Abhishek or X may have three and a half acres of land, but the three and a half acres of land is in seven parcels. One is a quarter of an acre, one is a full acre, one is a small, uh, you know, uh, X square meters. So, and these are distributed all over the place. Whereas it's far more economical, uh, you know, in terms of operations, in terms of management, in terms of maintenance of record, a whole bunch of things to have all of these pieces consolidated into one unit. But the moment I say it, you can visualize what all it will entail. My land, again, could be dry land. Yours could be uh, irrigated. My land is next to the highway. It's likely to hugely appreciate in value when the current highway is upgraded into a national highway. And I will have huge, huge uh, you know, potential upsides in the value of land, which I can monetize later. So this business of determining equivalence, because if I have to get land contiguous to a particular piece that I own, I have to give up my pieces which are elsewhere. And my neighbor here needs to give up his or her pieces next to my land. So you right. have to establish equivalence. This is a nightmare. Uh, it's not yeah, easily yeah. done. So the consolidation exercises in northern states is still underway. I don't mm. think there is too much energy in the uh, effort. I don't think governments are seriously backing it. So mm. this state-driven consolidation exercise, by and large, you know, there will always be five exceptions to prove uh, or disprove what I am saying. By and large, this consolidation, uh, I won't call it a spectacular success. That, that was quite comprehensive. And I like how you identified the large gap between the intention behind reforms and the reality of how they're being implemented. I wanted to segue to something that we spoke about briefly, um, specifically about the recent shifts in policy towards exploring a more market-driven approach in dealing with land. Do you think that private markets could work for land in India the way that they work for labor or capital? You know, prima facie, I don't see why markets will not work. So the economics that I have read tells me that ordinarily markets work. Markets also, you know, even theory upfront acknowledges that there are four 
and only four situations where markets fail. And, and these are well-known reasons for market failure. Uh, A, information asymmetry. B, presence of externalities. Uh, C, uh, uh, concentration of ownership. And last is provision of public goods. And there are theoretically only absolutely four and only four reasons why markets can fail. Now, in the case of land, clearly there is likelihood of information asymmetry. And given our historical context, there is also huge asymmetry of power. Because the other thing that markets typically assume is that innumerable sellers and buyers with broadly you know, equal power, which is the, the point about concentration. So typically, when you have very strong players on the one side, it could be the selling side or it could be the buying side, then transactions will typically fail. And market economics, I mean, public economics, uh, microeconomics clearly recognizes this and gives a role for the state to correct market failures. So I have absolutely no quarrel with the idea that there is a role for the state in, quote unquote, regulating the market for land. But I think the other thing that economic theory tells me is you need to identify exactly what is the market failure and address the reason for that market failure. The third thing that economic theory tells me is that the limiting factor in the state intervention is something on which we now hear a lot of uh, things uh, in public debates as well as in the economic literature, something called state capacity. You know, everything that is desirable is not necessarily doable. We are an, you know, a developing country. We are not yet an OECD-like uh, developed country, partly because we have less state capacity than we would like. Now, take the case of land. To implement either the abolition of intermediaries or to do consolidation, the kind of capacity required in the functionaries, you know, in the revenue functionaries in the field is enormous. And I'm not talking about the integrity part. I'm currently talking about just the technical capacity, the knowledge and the ability. So given these economic factors, A, identify the reasons for market failure. Two, your intervention should be designed to attack that particular reason for market failure. Three, design your intervention so as to be in tune with the capacity of the state machinery that you are presiding over and go back and look at what we've done in land. I think we have brought the state needlessly into areas where markets can function reasonably. For instance, take Delhi uh, land, uh, you know, the building uh, land, uh, land for building houses and commercial complexes in Delhi or in Mumbai or in Chennai. If you see the kind of state interventions in these areas, you really wonder who is being protected because neither the seller here nor the buyer here requires protection. And very often, and, and there is enormous amount of literature on this, state intervention, once it comes in, the political economy of the intervention will ensure that it doesn't go away easily. So who are the biggest beneficiaries of state intervention in practice, the bureaucrats, 
the politicians who preside over them and very often uh, public choice theory tells me that they are not optimizing the public objective they are optimizing their personal objectives in other words an enormous amount of corruption creeps in when you have these meaningless large amounts of control so to go back to each of those four uh, you know big legislations that you mentioned not only did they not get implemented the bureaucracy the political hierarchy essentially used these as rent seeking opportunities so the objective did not get fulfilled the poor of india did not get protected civil servants and politicians enriched themselves now is this what we want we clearly don't want this so i think we need to go back to ground zero take each piece of legislation and analyze it and see you wanted to protect let's say given concentration of power you wanted to protect the vulnerable is the law actually achieving that and if the law isn't achieving it do you need to revisit the law either rewrite the law or allow the markets to function because if liberalization post 91 helped a number of other markets prima facie there is no argument to say this will not benefit the participants in the land market and if you have good reasons to think it will not let's understand those reasons address them but not throw the baby out with the bath water markets are beneficial if they can be made to work in the manner that they are intended to be worked so it's like you remember the essays that we used to write in school science is a good servant but a bad master so i think very similar markets are a mechanism available for betterment of people's economic conditions if there are problems in the markets we fix the problems we don't throw out the market right right and and given that uh, land is a state subject maybe at this point we could also look at the different ways in which various states may have dealt with these issues for example karnataka recently allowed farmers to sell their land to non agriculturalists how do you think uh, moves like these figure into the larger issues of land use and reforms yeah first example is not directly use of land but it is use of land as an agricultural uh, you know asset you remember uh, you know sugarcane is a classic crop of what is called post contractual opportunism uh, let me explain uh, this phrase it's very simple i am a farmer growing sugarcane sugarcane is typically between depending on the variety that i grow between a 12 to 18 month crop and when my sugarcane is ripe for harvest and let's say it's reached the maximum juice content because the person buying the sugarcane from me is buying it to extract the maximum amount of sugarcane juice and thereafter use it for making sugar uh, mm-hmm. other by products etc etc mm-hmm. so there will be some 3 4 critical days at the time of harvest of my sugarcane when i need to cut transport and sell it to the sugar factory if i go 3 days later the sugarcane has begun to dry i'll get lower value for my produce and if i cut it earlier than it is meant to be uh, harvested likewise i will get uh, a lesser value than it ought to now by definition there can be you know in an area let's say i'm in a village in meerut given that there are 100 200 acres of land uh, growing sugarcane 
there is likely to be only one factory in the near proximity. India also had a system of licensing these factories. So we had restricted the number of sugar factories in the vicinity. This is a classic monopoly. That is, the sugarcane growers are innumerable, but the buyer of the sugarcane is likely to be one factory. Economic jargon calls it monopsony. That is, the purchaser is a monopoly. So the sugarcane factory can do what I used, uh, you know, the phrase that I used, post-contractual opportunism. I have contracted with a farmer that I will buy your sugarcane. But 18 months down the road, when the sugarcane is ripe, does the farmer have a choice? He has to necessarily sell the sugarcane only to the factory. And the factory can dictate terms. He can say, yeah, I had agreed that I'll give you X rupees per ton. But you know Mm -hmm. what? World sugar prices have fallen. India has a glut of sugar uh, last year. So I'm sorry, I won't be able to pay you the amount that I promised. I'll have to pay you 10% less, 20% less. Mm -hmm. This poor farmer has actually no choice. So after the contract, the Mm -hmm. monopsony buyer behaves opportunistically. That is why it is post-contractual opportunism. Right. How did we handle it? We handled it beautifully. In the 1920s and 30s, the then government of United Provinces, that is currently what is Uttar Pradesh, created what is called cane unions. So the 100 acres, let's say, were owned by 38 farmers. They were put together into a cooperative society. They created a union of members. Now, the monopsonist factory now did not deal with 38 producers. He or she had to necessarily deal with one union. So, to deal with a monopsony, you create a monopoly. Jargon calls it countervailing power. So, if there was asymmetry of power to begin with, you corrected the asymmetry by enabling the vulnerable here, namely the farmers, to get united and become powerful. That completely changed the conversation. Uh, The monopoly buyer had to intervene and say, now I'll deal, you know, I'll do business with you. He could not dictate prices because once these guys got together, if he wasn't willing to give them an advance, if he wasn't willing to give them the right price, collectively, they could hire a truck and move the sugarcane to another factory, which may have been 30 kilometers away, even suffer a loss, but set the terms of this contract once and for all. That is one example where this was done by policy and by intervention, <laughs> enabling markets to function by government intervention. Right. I think this example is quite insightful to understand and learn from. Um, and finally, I'd like to ask you a question based on the title of this podcast, Land of a Billion. What do you think should be next on the policy agenda for India to achieve the goal of providing secure land rights to a billion? You know, India has been running two very good uh, programs now combined into one. It's called the Digital India Land Records Modernization Program, DILRMP. Now, I think it's extremely good value for money. We don't spend a very large amount of money on this. Essentially, what we are doing in these programs is, A, improving the textual land records. Land records, as you're aware, consists of broadly two separate sets of records. One is the the cadaster, 
that is the map, the sketch which points out that Abhishek owns XYZ piece of land and that piece of land is marked in a map. It's bounded on side uh, north by uh, X's land, you know, east by so-and-so's land. So the boundaries are marked. You know precisely which is the physical piece of land that you own. There is a piece called Khatra, uh, sorry, Khasra or Khatoni in different states. It's got a different, you know, different titles, which is the textual part, which will describe Abhishek, son of so-and-so, acquired through following means by purchase, X acres of land. Uh, let's say if it's agricultural, it will describe what is the crop that is grown. Is it irrigated, not irrigated, etc., etc. So there is a textual part of the land record. And then there is the cadaster or the map or the sketch part of the land record. What do we need for good quality title? A, the textual and the sketch should be reflecting contemporary reality which means they need to be updated on a fixed and frequent periodicity. It should reflect exactly what is the ground reality today. So if Abhishek has sold off the corner of his plot for establishment of Amazon's distribution unit, it should show that corner in the Northeast has been sold. It now belongs to XYZ and Abhishek is the owner of the balance of the land. So. Both the cadaster and the textual records should reflect current contemporary reality. Point two, the textual and the cadaster need to be in sync with each other. What is recorded in the textual part of the land record should be identical to not only ground reality, but the map should reflect exactly that reality. The current difficulty with land records is a, they are not up to date, but much more seriously, the textual and the maps don't and most often don't match. So, if we need to move to a situation where we want to assure billions of Indians their title, all we need to do at a practical level is ensuring that records are up to date and the records are in sync with each other. There is beyond this a lot of legislative stuff that we need to do. Those are complex issues because uh, we need to amend a whole bunch of legislations, some union legislation, some state legislation, and that will have to be like a, you know, a GST-like exercise. It's a mammoth exercise. Pending that, we can easily do a serious push to DILRMP, and I think the cost will not be more than three to 5,000 crores per annum for the next four to five years. So in the India budget context, we are talking about peanuts. We are talking about 20,000 crores maximum over a period of five years, maybe even less. And I think if we do this, the payoff is going to be 50 times, 100 times the money that we are spending on this program. Uh, so my one line uh, sort of suggestion is strengthen DILRMP, put more energy into it, put more money into it, put more technology into it, make it a partnership, a much stronger partnership with states. And I think we will have rewritten the land story for a billion Indians. Uh, okay, thank you so much for joining us on Land of a Billion, Dr. Krishnan. Thanks, Abhishek. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and thanks for the opportunity. 
Thank you. We covered a lot of ground, and I think you've provided us with a very lucid understanding of the trajectory of uh, land reforms. Thank you. This was the last episode of our series, and we sincerely hope that you enjoyed this podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your thoughts. Do tweet or send us a message at prrc underscore India on Twitter. Also, if you'd like to catch up on our previous episodes, do tune in wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Geo Savan. And if you like our work, do subscribe and share it. For the latest on property rights in India, do follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Where PRRC underscore India on Twitter and Property Rights Research Consortium on LinkedIn. Thanks for tuning in and take care. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quince website and check out our other podcasts.